Hello and welcome to the Digital Works Oral History Podcast. This series is called Real Stories, an oral history of London cinema projectionists. Episode 3 explores the types of people who become projectionists, the ups and downs of work, and how changes in cinema and film projection affected their work, all leading to the development of digital projectors which had such a huge impact on their industry. There are two camps of people that became projectionists. Those that do it because they are absolute film buffs. They they have an encyclopedic knowledge of film. They know all the actors and directors. They can name you every Oscar winner. And it's all about the the opportunity to go and see a film, to watch film and to be part of it. And and that's categorically the area they fall into. And then there's techies people who are technical and that's what matters to them that it's about how stuff works and making stuff work and there may be a part an element of showmanship but it's it's putting on a show and it's knowing the technical bit um with it and i definitely fall into that category you know my knowledge everyone assumes that because i'm a projectionist i i'm going to win the film quiz i haven't got a chance i can't tell you any actors or directors or anything I don't know, sometimes you, you talk to a projectionist about what the film was like after a screening and they'll say, oh yeah, it was, yeah, it was good, 89 minutes, a few joins, a bit of dirt at the, end, the ends of the reels. And what was it like as a film? Oh, I don't know. I love films, but I'm not a filmy. A lot of projectionists are filmy, where they have to watch everything. I'm not like that. I, I want to hear the clattering of the projector and making sure it all runs smoothly. That's, that's what I really enjoy. You've got to really love it. You have to really intensely love the industry to want to spend that much time with, with the projectors, lovingly getting in the back of them and polishing up the brass just because you, you, you kind of, in the end, you know, I, I found my time sometimes talking to them and I just put it down to the fact that I was just in a room on my own. It's not a social job. Yeah, I think starting off in the old days was maybe five or six to a projection room and uh, you've got that camaraderie and, you know, and yeah, I can say if somebody if somebody had personal problems, you were there to have a chat with them. Uh, if you got a bit fed up, they were there to have a chat with you. You know, it, it was a it was a team teamwork really. But to, towards the end, when you're on your own, it's uh, isolation crept in. I don't think it was any good for people's mental health at all. And of course, back then it wasn't something that was spoken about the way it is now. Um, but I think people were trapped in a dark room for a long period of time. So, I mean, I think the, the drinking became a problem when it was down to just one person alone because, again, there was, wasn't a lot to do. I mean, if you had 6,000-foot spools and zen lamps, you had very, very little to do. When I worked at the, in the rep cinemas, the electric and the, um, the everyman, sometimes you wouldn't see anybody all day, so at all. My, my wife at the time would come in at uh, some time about six or seven o'clock with, um, with my dinner. So whatever they were having, she'd put a plate out for me and with a thing on top of it and a dessert. And she'd, um, on a tray, and she put a, a tea towel over the top of it. And then she and my little boy, who was about, probably about two and a half then, we'd, They'd trot round, and then she'd go through around the back of the in the back of the stalls, and then up the stairs, and bring me my dinner. And uh, so 
that was, but that would be, that would be my bit of um, company for the day. But there is like the old story of we're weird people who work in the dark for a long time on our own. <laughs> and it's just, the thing is, you've got to like the job because, I mean, in the old days, it was a long hour. You probably spent more time at work than you probably did with your family. Um, but it became my social life. And I was there every hour, God send. We parted with cinema people. We went out to the local bars with cinema people. <laughs> Um, and some days, if I was really, really bored in my early days in the industry, I used to go and hang out in the cinema when I wasn't supposed to be working because I'd be bored senseless on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, I probably shouldn't be saying this either, but I can, I think, this far on. We had a Scalectric set up in the projection room. So I'd just go and play that. The, the hours were, could be a little bit difficult, a bit antisocial. So you, you probably, you know, if you were caught in, you probably met one of the usherettes on a night off when you were off. And I married one in the end. <laughs> there were a lot of affairs that used to happen in cinemas. I mean, we were always after the head of the um, ice cream girl. I was, I was really nervy when I first started. I used to kind of skulk from one projection box to the next with my, with my head down, trying not to meet people. As a, I mean, I guess that might be one of the reasons why I ended up as a projectionist, trying to avoid people's gaze. It's an incredibly structured environment. Everything is timed. You have to be, the film has to go on at certain times. It's scheduled for this time. So it's all very structured. So you know like what work you have to do to get to that point in time. The structure of it's just so comforting. I like that about this work. I like knowing um, what I'm doing when I'm doing it. There's a lot of projectionists who are very happy and they like the job because they're on their own in the dark in their own little world and there's others that are kind of very social and, and, and like to go out and, uh, and interact with people. Um, there's also, I think there, there should be a study done on the amount of serial killers who've been projectionists as well. That is very much a backstory that could be explored. Very, very sexist. That, that's my big takeaway from it. It was so unbelievably sexist, but it was just the norm. It's what everybody, so what everyone did. And I think we accepted it back then and what some of the guys would say to you. And actually, they knew boundaries and it was fine, but you wouldn't get away with it in a workplace now. You can see that it was definitely an industry of its time. I've actually been told to my face, we don't hire female projectionists. So, <laughs> like, it, it's, it can be like that, so. I worked really hard to learn the, tra the craft of it and the trade of it. and. Um, and I also wanted to prove the other projectionists wrong and to show them that actually you know, I could do it. And nobody thought I'd be able to lug those cans up the stairs. Nobody thought I'd be able to make all those films up and, and handle the pressure of a film going, you know, a film, you know, the film breaking in the gate or, or even just being able to do the changeovers when the changeovers were supposed to happen or, and the whole thing. So yes, I did really feel like I needed to prove them wrong as a woman, that I was perfectly capable of doing it. It was definitely an industry that attracted uh, lesbians and gay men, and gay men in particular because of the whole showbizy kind of thing to it. So there were a few, I was very much, I was out to all my friends, but I, I I wasn't out at work because you encountered quite a lot of, of not explicit homophobia, but casual homophobia. Um, 
And also, you know, you'd overhear conversations where general managers and regional managers would say, um, oh, if I'd known he was a puff, I wouldn't have employed him. Um, or kind of like, oh, we'll have to work on getting rid of him then. Um, and that would kind of chill you to the bone. You'd be kind of like, these, these people could ruin my career. A projectionist was a projectionist whether you showed theatrical release mainstream content or art house film or rushes or post-production a projectionist was a projectionist um, we were all very much part of the same team if, if I walked somewhere and someone says they worked on this that's it we're, as far as I'm concerned they're family yeah when when Todd Ayo came out 70 millimeter everybody wanted to work at the Dominion Tottenham Court Road because that was 70 mil you know that was the the Harrods of cinema projection, for want of a better word. Well, everybody wanted to work at the Odeonessa Square, didn't they? That was like the mecca of, uh, well, should I say mecca, because it's another company. They, it was the place that everybody wanted to work was the Odeonessa Square. I wasn't that bothered because I thought it'd be too much hassle. You got the Queen come today and you think, be thinking, oh no. Yeah, it was because we we're a public funded um, body, it was just, it just was resolutely uncommercial and you know people were there for art and for education and for film and there wasn't a drive for profit as such and that that kind of filtered through everything in its own way this is probably the peak of what you can do as projectionist because we do a lot of we're doing world premieres all the time like we are doing the festival but then we do get the big names turn up and the thing is it's different all the time so it's not like you're just showing one film five times a day for three weeks yeah, the things here are different just all the time. At the Scala, the, the, the auditorium was huge. The, it was a big palace there. And, um, and it, the whole thing felt very special with the lights going down and then the, 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 the projector, projector sort of opening up and the, the, the image hitting the screen. A massive screen as well. And the, the auditorium was really raked with gorgeous plush red velvet seats and the, and the sort of long carpet and it was, I mean, it was, yeah, it was a very special place and felt like a very special experience as well. And the Scala was showing a phenomenal programme. It had an amazing programme of films that you weren't, you, you weren't going to find anywhere else. I mean, the electric cinema was, in those days, it was, um, it was almost the doyen of, um, of, uh, of repertory cinemas in that it had great programming and really ran on a shoestring and they did you just you're actually kind of sweated labor really you just you know there was no, no finesse to it I didn't really hardly knew what I was doing I just did it I mean I, I had a list of films to get on screen uh, and times to get them on screen by and I just cracked on with it we had great problems in finding anybody who was always, always still working in projection from the circuits or independently or whatever, because the electric was much, much more work. <laughs> the outcome of that was we used to get people who were interested 
uh, who necessarily didn't know a great deal about projection, uh, but we could train them. They were normal projectionists, they just happened to work in a sex cinema. But it was just a weird place to go to because I had to deliver the notices for the union meeting. I used to go around like an afternoon and to all the cinemas in the West End and hand them to projection. You had to go through one of the screens to go to the projection room, you know, to get to the back. And you walked in this screen and it was just, there was all these sort of men sat there with their sort of raincoats. And all you could hear from the screen was heavy breathing. And I thought, I've just got to get through this and get to the box. And hopefully nobody saw me come in at the front door. I'd gone to the Odeon Cinema in Epsom and in the box there they had a VIC-18 projector and they were trying this new system because the VIC-18 you could run the entire program, it had a, you could run the feature on the back made up on one spool and the second feature on the front. You had a timer and you say you, you're supposed to start the film in 10 minutes, you go, you press, get the little egg timer, it was like an egg timer, it just went round to 10 and press the button and then it used to go tick, 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 tick. and then that would start the program and then at the end it would shut you down because you put a little bits of metallic tape on the end of the film and that would be picked up by a pulse and that would shut you down, play music, bring the lights up. Everything was automated. You, you didn't physically start the show. And they put in these longer playing uh, platter systems which would take the whole program with one projector. So they were trying out as a for single manning and that was a really really early tryout and they found it worked so that was the end of big crews in projection boxes and two of you on a day and so on. In the 60s it would have been um, some of the older cinemas because in America they, they had these multiplex cinemas uh, but of course over here we still had a lot of old original cinema buildings so of course they what they could do there they could perhaps put two small screens in at the back of the back of the stalls. See in those days if you did real with a film sometimes you had to get rid of it after a week because you had to because you had your next film coming even though it was sold out so if you got three screens, you can then move that to another screen and run it for, run it for about 20 weeks, can't you, you know? And this is what you did. I mean, the full Monty, I think we run that for about 18 weeks because you can move it to another screen. And also they, they, they wanted to sort of cater for everybody so they could have a, an adult film, a children's film and a family film. So you, could, you had more choice. Triple wasn't enough, let's have five. Oh, five's not enough, let's have eight. I mean, that's what we ended up with, eight. There was eight screens, but two projection rooms, and they were 60-odd steps apart. So you'd have, you'd start one ads and trailers, then run upstairs to start another one, then go to another screen to start that, then go back to the first one to do the lens change for the feature, then back up, then start another one. Basically, you had like five-minute gaps. 
I was a lot thinner then because I was running up and down stairs so much. But when I moved from Shaftesbury Avenue to the Trocadero, which was seven screens, that to me was a culture shock. From running two screens to running seven screens. But by then it was all what they call cake stands and platters. In the West End, we'd always rehearsed Prince, so I'd always sat and watched it anyway. But of course, as, as the, the, the cinemas were added, as the, the multiplexes and that, you never had time. You were just making films up and breaking films down. I mean, you could be in a 12-screen multiplex and half the films you'd never get a chance to see. Well, when I started, there, were, there was a team of five for two screens. Then we went down to four, then down to three, then down to two. Then we went to the multiplex. We went back up to three, but there's three people for eight screens instead of, you know, the workload was, was a lot more. You also had to operate 14 separate 35mm projectors, which was in, uh, laid out in a kind of very long V-shaped projection room. But we are talking, you know, it's a good two or three minutes running from one far end to the other far end. And the projectors were never like, oh, do this one, and then it's the one next door. And it was kind of like, no, it's do this one, then run all the way around to the other end. That one, then run all the way back to the other end, because it's that one. Um, and you would have those projectors coming off and going back on, 14 of them, within about half an hour. So it literally was a like spinning plates. Projectionists who found um, a lot of their cinemas closing in favour of these big multiplexes at, at sort of opening... Um, started to look down on the people coming into the profession at the time. Um, so the, one of the terms that was used was um, machine minder. So it's derogatory. The idea is that they're just minding machines. They're not actually real projectionists. There was this kind of also conception that the multiplexes didn't really care about film. Or they didn't really care about the art film projection or presentation. They just wanted to get audiences in and audiences out. I mean, in my day, like ABC Circuit and the Odeon lads would probably tell you, Odeon, they were a family-run business and they really did care about the staff. But in the end, you were just a name, you were a name and a number. It wasn't what I went in the industry for and the industry was changing. And when... I had an, a leaving interview <laughs> and the lady asked me why. I said, because I feel as though I'm working in a sweet shop now that shows films, not a cinema. And no, it's just the joy of gone. So there's a lot of criticism saying, oh, multiplexes are very sanitised and they were just basically McDonald's with cinema screens on the back. And it's kind of like... There might have been a few like that, but the majority, particularly the UCIs, they were run by really passionate people at that time who genuinely believed in showmanship and film and film marketing and doing publicity stunts. We, we had the, the first digital projector um, that was used in a UK cinema in 2000. I mean, in, in those days, I mean, it's a bit different than it is today. We, we had a pile of disks that we had to put in the server. It took all day to load up. I mean, it's like watching paint dry. But now, I mean, it's all done from somewhere else now. 
I was at the Prince Charles and we were always like about six, seven years behind everybody else. So when digital started go, coming up in the other cinemas, I didn't have to deal with it because we couldn't afford it. <laughs> so we didn't want it because we wanted to show films and we showed a lot of old films. So, you know, we never had problems getting hold of stuff. And obviously there was the day, the inevitable day where it was installed. I hated it. I used to look at it like that, I hate you. Um, and then you get digital. Obviously it does make your life easier in, in certain aspects of the job, but it was never fun to show for me. Um, and it was all kind of automated, so open your curtains for you and whatever. So once you'd done the whole programming it was, and, and loading up, it was just play. You know, there is no joy in creating playlists and just, you know, setting timers going and relying on the automation for digital. I think that Odeon nowadays, I think all their cinemas in the country, they're programmed from either South Wales or Newcastle, wherever their headquarters are. So you don't have anyone with any technical knowledge on site of any cinema. I think change, things changed enormously when digital came in. And it was one of those opportunities for cinema companies to get rid of a lot of long-term employees and uh, replace them with kind of newer and younger people who'd be on more flexible contracts or zero-hour contracts or, you know, lower pay rates. Projectionist was used to be considered skilled, used to be fairly well paid. Um, it isn't really any longer. It's just one, just one additional kind of low-paid job within the cinema. You know, it decimated the industry in terms of getting rid of technicians and projectionists from all the cinemas and changing 100 years of, of history and, and, and technology. But at the same time, we've ended up in a position where there are now cinemas in locations and places that just would never have worked if they needed projectors, uh, film projectors, you know. And we've changed the way that cinema can be consumed because we can move it into these buildings that weren't designed to be cinemas but can be now. When I left Picture House I went to work for an AV company installing uh, education screens. I lasted three months. I just couldn't do it. I, I, I missed it so much. I went straight back and I went to wait for Sky running their cinema. Uh, that was when I started volunteering at the David Lean Cinema because I needed that fix. I needed that fix of being in the projection room again. Then basically when the digital rollout came in in 2011, it was obvious that what the writing was on the wall really. And sure enough, about a year later, they said my role was redundant. So at that time, Odin had moved into the IMAX and there was a vacancy up here. So I applied for it. So I was very lucky. I, I thought I got the golden ticket, really. We knew we were going, so they offered us a nice incentive, extra redundancy pay, and nearly all of us, like rats, left a sinking ship. They kept offering redundancy, but I kept turning it down. Um, and um, it, it got to right in the end. Um, you could tell that they just wanted to get rid of you, you know, to get it over to not costing them anything to, to show a film or, and everything. And so I did in the end accept redundancy in 2013. On Christmas Eve at 9 o'clock 2010, 
and there was only two million members of staff to say goodbye, a manager and one of the, one of the usherettes, to say goodbye to me after 43 years. So that's how the company thought of you at the end, I think. An enjoyable life. It's been a wonderful life, you know, great film. Uh, and I just enjoyed my time. I'm I mean, there's been moments when I could have kicked the projector over and there's been moments when I could have kissed it. It's meant a whole lifetime of public entertainment to which I've enjoyed. And I wouldn't have changed a minute of it. This podcast was produced by Digital Works with thanks to our team of wonderful volunteers and to our interviewees for sharing their time and their stories. Thanks to the British Film Institute, the Cinema Theatre Association and BEC2. The project was funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. You can hear all 20 interviews in their entirety and also watch the documentary film made for this project at www.realstories.org.uk. To find out more about our many oral history projects, please visit www.digital-works.co.uk.